You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. We have some great interviews coming up, as well as some terrific guest interviews, so stay tuned for those. Uh, we're also looking for millionaires to be on the show. If you're interested in being on, if you're interested in unveiling and, and discussing your net worth and your financial story, then feel free to reach out to us. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We're specifically looking for those that uh, make below six figures in income. We had Jeff the Custodian on making 40K. He was able to reach millionaire status, and we had some terrific feedback about that. And so we're trying to get more of those interviews on the show. So feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to have you on. As always, we have some investment opportunities coming up. Uh, returns have been great. Track record with those we're partnering with has been uh, expansive. And we have deals in a cu- with a couple different groups catering to those who either favor cash flow more consecutively or more of a build-out appreciation model. Uh, if you have any questions you'd like us to ask the millionaires that we interview, please feel free to reach out. We're happy to include those. We like to ask new questions, mix things up, keep keep all the listeners entertained, and, and make sure we're all learning something new. So if you, if you want to be on the show or have any questions, feel free to reach out. Our email again is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. So on today's show, we have Still In from Mili- Mil- Military Millions. He's an ER physician in the Navy. He's in his mid-40s with a current net worth of $4.2 million. And that 4.2 is broken out. He has a, a pension, uh, 1.6 million, which we get into how that pension was built up, when it could be paid out, some of the details behind that. He has a house that's just over 400,000 that's fully paid for. And then he has over $3 million in traditional investments. And those investments are primarily in Vanguard index funds and 80-20 split stocks to bonds. We also talk with him about generational wealth and then some of his his paths, his steps to financial security that he has on his website. And some of those include start tracking your net worth, getting properly insured, establishing an emergency fund, managing debt, and making an intelligent rent versus buy decision. So great interview with Military Millions. Let's get into the show with him. Welcome to Millionaires Unveiled podcast. Today on the show, we've got Stillin from MilitaryMillions.com. Dylan, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and what you're doing now? Yeah, not a problem. So, uh, 40 years old. I've been in the military for 17 and a half years. And I've got my what's probably my last promotion. I've got a uh, pension locked up that I can start taking in uh, four years from now. Um, I'm a doctor in the, in the military. And, uh, basically we, you know, me and a couple other people that, uh, write on the blog, we, we blog about, um, basically how you can use the military to achieve financial independence. And frankly, um, the, the biggest thing that's probably the, the kind of the hook of the website is that all you have to really do is just stay in for 20 years in the military. And if you're even moderately successful, you you could probably guarantee yourself, um, a net worth of a million dollars when you factor in the value of the government pension. That's pretty much what we what we talk about and try to focus on. That's cool. And what kind of physician are you? Uh, ER. ER. Awesome. And and what yeah. is your net worth today? Well, like I was uh, saying, it if you include the value of the government pension, which we certainly will probably talk about, it's approximately four point two million. 
Okay, and, and, and let's break that down between the pension and then all your other assets. Sure. So my pension in particular, the you know, every every year the Department of Defense has to provide a report to the to the to Congress that basically lays out the value of a military retirement. And my military retirement is valued at one point six million dollars net present value. Uh, so that's a pretty big chunk of it. I got a paid off house that's probably worth about four hundred twenty thousand dollars. And then all the rest of it, you know, I don't know, 2.2 or so is all traditional investments that, you know, spread between the thrift savings plan, which is the military's 401k and uh, Vanguard. Pretty much everything else is in Vanguard, except my wife has this like really tiny 401k that I can't stand from uh, John Hancock. Drives me crazy, but... (laughs) <laughs> and when you say Vanguard, is that invested in index funds or do you have that spread across a couple different funds or what? what is that in? Yeah, I hope you're not looking for uh, anything too exciting because uh, like good investing tends to be boring. So I'm pretty much 80-20 stocks and bonds um, and I do pretty much exactly what Vanguard recommends when uh, when you look at their target date funds or get any advice from them. So the stocks are split 60-40 domestic and international total stock index, total international index across the board. And then the bonds are split 70-30 domestic and international. Again, all, you know, total bond index funds essentially um, or the government equivalent in the 401k for the government, the TSP or thrift savings plan. And that's what Vanguard recommends. That's what I do. I figure they're like a five or six trillion dollar company who's, you know, essentially a nonprofit and uh, I try not to outsmart myself, so I just go with whatever they recommend largely. So how come you how come you decided to allocate twenty percent to bonds? Just curious. A lot of our some of our listeners do, a lot of our listeners don't. Just kind of curious your reasoning behind that. Yeah, that drives me nuts. To be honest with you, I was actually on the phone with a Vanguard financial advisor what three days ago. And he asked me if I had any anxiety over what they recommend. And I told him, yeah, the anxiety I have is actually I want to be 100% in stocks because I like to look at my government pension as like a massive pile of inflation index bonds. But that's not what Vanguard does. And, you know, they they, they say, hey, look, if you want to replace $150,000, let's just say, let's say you want $120,000 of retirement income and you have a $60,000 a year pension. Well, that's just $60,000 you need to generate from your investments aside from the pension. They don't look at the pension as like a $60,000 a year pile of bonds. And and there are people on both sides of that argument. But I, I kind of – I've just forced myself to just go with the William Bernstein take that like once you've won the game, you should stop playing. And we've won the game. So – I've kind of forced myself to stop playing, buying the bonds in addition to the, um, you know, government pension just to honestly, just because, you know, at this point, the only thing I could do is screw this up. So I'm kind of forcing myself to be more conservative than my honest, my honest risk tolerance wants me to be. So you mentioned you were on the you were on the phone with uh, Vanguard. Do you, how often do you call them, or do you use a separate financial advisor, or, or talk yeah. to them about that? I, I do all my own investing, but you know, 
I mean, maybe it's the doctor in me. I don't think a second opinion is a bad idea when you're dealing with something serious. So it's free. You know, when you become flagship, if you have more than a million dollars with Vanguard, you guys probably know you become flagship. You can essentially talk to a certified financial planner anytime you want. And, you know, I'm pretty young, so I'd honestly be 46 when I could retire. So I, I talked to them last in 2016, and I just talked to them, you know, three, three or four days ago. And so I just get kind of like a second opinion every couple of years from them just to make sure there's nothing they think that I'm doing wrong. And this time specifically, we were trying, my wife and I, we were trying to get, again, a second opinion to make sure that we weren't being overly optimistic. Because when we look at our financial situation and our age, we think we could retire and not change our um, standard of living in any way, shape or form essentially if four years from now when I'd be 46 and I'd be right about to turn 47. So we wanted their opinion on that. They agreed with me, which I kind of knew, but I figured it couldn't hurt just to get a second opinion. Yeah. And, and do you use that a lot? Or is, is, have they told you advice that's been good for you? Or have you learned things from them? Or do you kind of just look at them for a second opinion and stick with what your, your decisions are? I used them for the first time probably like eight years ago, but I don't honestly don't even really remember what they said. I I do remember in 2016, I used them and, you know, I was flagship and so it was free. And and they were the ones that were like, look, we understand why you're 100% stocks, but you don't need to be. And, you know, like I told you, I kind of had angst over that. And I, I honestly, what I did was I, I kind of went with their recommendation. And then I was like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. That that government pension is like a massive pile of bonds. This is ridiculous. And I kind of went back to 100%. And then I I, I just was like, you know, I, I, this is just stupid. I, I'm, I'm just going to go with their recommendation. I got enough. Uh, all I can do is screw this up. I'm going to like not screw it up. And I'm just going to go with their recommendation. So I want to go back here and dive into this pension. So you said it was at 1.6 million. Is that correct? Yeah, for me, uh, you know, if you the DOD, the Department of Defense puts out a table and you can just look at your rank and how many years you have in. And it basically gives you a number for, for you know, what it's worth in, in the eyes of the Department of Defense today, net present value. So it's I think it's one point five, eight, four million dollars based for me today. Okay. Okay, nice. Good for you. And how does that how does that start? How does it accrue a certain amount per year based on your position or based on your terms of service or, or how do they do that? Yeah, so there's two systems now. They just started a new system. I'm under the old system. So the old system was like a cliff vest. So you had to stay in twenty years or you got nothing. And basically what they do is they take your the the the, the highest paying three years you have. And if you stay in twenty years you get fifty percent of that pay inflation adjusted for the rest of your life now if you um if you stay in uh, beyond 20 years every uh additional year you get another two and a half percent so you stay in 30 years you get 75 percent of your top three years you stay in you know 40 years you get 100 percent. but then they just switch to this new much more modern system where you take the tw- if you if you go with the system it's called the blended retirement system you get 401k matches uh, while you're in the military, which I don't get under the old system, and you take a 20% hit on your pension. So instead of 2% being 2.5% being the multiplier for every year you stay in, uh, you, you get a 2%. So if you stay in 20, 
you get 40% and you get 2% every additional year you stay in. But the odd, you know, the odds say that the overwhelming majority of people that enter the military get out. It's essentially around 80%. So those under the old system, the system I'm under, the, the 80% that get out get nothing other than whatever they put in. So they join the military, they don't get any match, and then they leave with just whatever money they put away. And only 20%, it's actually less than 20%, but approximately 20% would stay in long enough to get a retirement benefit. So this new blended retirement system or BRS is much more of a modern thing where, you know, since the majority of people are going to get out, you get, you'll leave with something that the Department of Defense contributed to your retirement under that plan. Would you recommend somebody going into a, a position, whether it be the military or whether it be just working for the government to get kind of a pension plan like this? You know, it's, it's kind of one of those things that's, it's becoming obsolete amongst, you know, bigger companies. But the government obviously still offers them. Would I mean, who 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 does that fit in your opinion? Well, I don't think anyone should really join the military or work for the government just for financial reasons. But you know, I I do think that um, you know it tr- creates a tremendous floor, you know, below which your income won't won't drop, you know, barring like cataclysmic events. And, and I think that's valuable. I mean, if you just take my, I, mean, I already told you guys, I'm an ER doctor. I mean, I've had job offers. I could do nothing but answer job offers 24-7, 365, all of which would probably pay me, you know, one and a half to two times, if not more, of what I make as a salary in the Navy and, uh, and, and never run out of jobs to answer. But, I mean, I like the military. I thought they've treated me well. I've pretty much got what I wanted. And then now I have this, you know, I have this inflation-adjusted pension that depending on how long I stay in is going to be anywhere from $65,000 a year to $100,000 a year for the rest of my life. And, you know, whether you believe in social security or not, then whenever I get to 62 or to 70 and take that, you know, you lay that on top of it too. I mean, I'm never going to be eating dog food during retirement. So, um, can you do a lot better in a lot of industries that are highly compensated, you know, like medicine and other things? Yeah, I think you can. But, I mean, there's something about – I mean, in my particular case, I mean, I, I like being in the military. It means something to me. You know, uh, I probably could have done better on the outside, but uh, I have this, you know, this financial floor that's government, you know, provided, inflation-adjusted. It's not going to – I'm not going to fall below. And I think, you know, I can get out at the age of 46 and I could still do something else if I wanted to and have that pension. And the other thing that people don't really value that we could talk about is the – Honestly, probably the biggest problem for people that try to retire early is their health insurance. And you stay in 20 years, you, you kind of lock in access to TRICARE, you know, the, the military um, health care system, which is hugely valuable too. Yeah, that's that's something that, you know, amongst the fire community and just people in general is, is a hot topic. And, and you're saying that, you know, you say in the military 20 years, you've got access to that. I mean, just given where your premiums and what what you pay for all that. I mean, how would you place a value on that, or could you? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't never seen anybody financially value it. But let's look at it this way. I mean, as of right now, I'd have to look up the numbers while we're on the phone. But I, I mean, it's well under a thousand dollars. I would pay for an entire years of coverage for my entire family, which is probably less than I'd have to pay for a civilian equivalent per month. Yep, totally. You know, probably way less. And so I thank you and your tax dollars for that. But I mean, um, yeah, that's 
you know. And I'm not saying any system's perfect. I mean, just like all health plans, it, it's going to have its pluses and its minuses. But honestly, the fire community, you guys know, I mean, honestly, access to healthcare is a huge problem. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, the, the guy that, you know, writes the blog with me, um, that's part of his problem, you know, is that he's looking at potentially retiring early, but it's, it's the cost of healthcare that, you know, he, he didn't stay in the military long enough to, to get the TRICARE and the pension. So uh, that's a problem for him. I, I don't, I don't have that problem. Yeah. So if somebody's in, in your shoes, meaning they're going to have a pension, they're going to have, you know, some sort of guaranteed uh, fixed income in the future. How do you go about investing in retirement accounts, um, you know, whether it be within in the government system or even without outside, you know, such as a, a Roth IRA or or something like that? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, ha- I, like I said, you can make a lot more as a doctor in the, in the outside of the military, but, you know, we're paid pretty well. So, I don't factor the pension into my retirement savings at all. So I remember pretty early on in my life, one of the like major things that I did was I read the David Bach book, like uh, automatic millionaire. Uh And I, and I remember in there, I think it was in there. I'm pretty sure that there was a chart and it basically said, Hey, you want to work the rest of your life, save 10% or less of your gross income toward retirement. You want to be, you know, work until 65, save 10 to 20%. You want to be wealthy, save 20 to 30%. And so I, I didn't even think about the pension and I started saving 30%. And I've done that my whole life. And so I fill up the TSP, you know, the government 401k. We do a backdoor Roth for both of us every year. And then everything else, I don't have access to anything else really. She's got kind of a she changes jobs, my wife. And so she sometimes has a 401k. She also has a solo 401k we use when she's a 1099 employee. But most of it, the overwhelming majority of it just goes in taxable accounts. And so that's what we do. And then, you know, when it comes to allocation, we just treat the whole, all the money that's set aside for retirement, whether it's in a 401k, the TSP, or it's just in mentally earmarked for retirement in a taxable account. We just treat it all as one big pot. And, you know, the allocation of 80-20 right now is is across that whole, you know, thing. So I want to dive into some things on your website here. One of the things you have, uh, again, for our listeners, that's militarymillions.com. You have your steps to financial security. So yeah. let's just go through those. The first one you have is is start tracking your net worth. Yeah, I mean, I really just don't feel like you have any idea where you're going unless you start to monitor it. You know, I don't think you, you don't, you don't quite see the impact of your decisions uh, that you make until you start seeing how it affects your net worth. And I didn't start doing this until later in my career. I think at some point Vanguard started doing it automatic, fairly automatically for me, but these tools like mint and personal capital, which is what I use. Um, they're just revolutionary. I mean, the fact that you can just get on there and put all that stuff in there and it'll just do it automatically for you is amazing. And it's not just your net worth too, it's your spending. Like this whole discussion I was having with Vanguard about whether I can retire or not. Frankly, one of the major things was I just went on personal capital and I looked at for the last two years, what are we spending? And and it's doing it automatically because all my accounts are linked there. There's really nothing there that, you know, there's nothing missing. So it just confirmed that our level of spending was approximately what I thought it was. And uh, I, I think, you know, early on, if, if people just focus on 
you know, their net worth, track it, and realize that when they buy stuff, that it goes down. <laughs> I think it's probably the the biggest lesson you need to learn when you start tracking that. You buy the fifty thousand dollar car, your net worth just went down by fifty thousand dollars because you're not going to be putting your car into uh, personal capital. Although I guess you can, but <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, your second step is is get properly insured, and I think we talked about this a little bit with the medical insurance, but what about other types of insurance? I mean, what other types of insurance do you have? Disability, life, what do you have and, and, and how much? Is that, a, is that a useful and a needed step? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's probably, you know, the first first thing, start tracking your net worth. Second thing, get insured. I think there's a lot of insurance that people tend to neglect. I think a lot of people buy life insurance. They might not even need it. The one they typically overlook is disability insurance. I mean, especially since we're talking about people in the military, you know, the military has its own disability insurance plan with the VA. But the way it works, you know, if you're a highly compensated person in the military, like uh, you're a pilot, you're a doctor, you're a dentist, you know, whatever whatever you are, that disability system does not compensate you like a doctor or a dentist or a pilot. It compensates you like a normal officer or a normal enlisted person. So for a lot of my military career, I had supplemental disability insurance. I mean, you're so much more likely to get disabled than you are, you know, to die at a young age. So I had that. I don't need it anymore because of my net worth, and I, I don't. I just don't just don't need it anymore. If I if something did happen to me, I'd have enough uh, with the current uh, insurance program with the military. But um, obviously, when your net worth gets significant enough, I think when you get up to the seven figures, you ought to have umbrella liability insurance. Uh, that's definitely something people don't look into. And, you know, frankly, in the military, people are renting a lot of times, especially early in their career. I mean, somebody I know recently had their place burned down and, you know, they didn't have renter's insurance. Well, now they don't have anything. So I think you got to take a look at your insurance needs and, and make sure you've got that met before you start getting really serious about anything beyond that. Yeah, I'm with you. So just to circle back to that umbrella insurance just briefly explain that. Obviously, a lot of most of our interviewees are millionaires. A lot of our listeners are. What does that cover, and, and where do people find that, and how much does it cost? Yeah, well, it's pretty cheap. I mean, I'm not I'm not an insurance agent, but my understanding is this: like, it doesn't cover anything related to your to your job, you know. So it doesn't have anything to do with if I work in an ER somewhere. It doesn't cover malpractice, but uh, you know, your house, uh, your car, two huge sources of potential liability. I mean, you know, you come over to my house and my dog bites you and get, you get a horrible infection and they have to take off one of your limbs. And you're the only worker in a family of six children, you know. I mean, that that's liability that I would be exposed to. And my umbrella liability insurance covers anything I'm sued for above and beyond my homeowner's insurance. Same thing with the car. Um, you know, you, you plow over the only earner of a seven-family seven-person family, and, uh, you know, you get sued. Well, I mean, most auto insurance only goes up to three or $500,000 of liability. So you lay, you know, they sell it in million-dollar increments. You lay a million on top of that. Now you got 1.5, and it's really cheap. I mean, you get it from the same place you get your other insurance. I get all mine from USAA. I think I pay $680 a year for $3 million in coverage on top of the 500000 that's with my auto and my home. And generally, the recommendation that I've seen, there's they vary, is, um, you know, you should have at least as much as your net worth. And a lot of com- a lot of companies will stop when you get up to like, I think they stop at five or ten million, but it's pretty cheap. Usually, hundred or two hundred bucks for every million dollars that you need. Gotcha. 
Great advice, I think. Your your third step, establish an emergency fund. I know Dave Ramsey is three to six months. That's what he recommends. Do you recommend the same or, or a different amount? Well, I don't know. I think there's a couple of ways to do it. You know, you can take a little extra risk or you can be conservative. I mean, definitely three to six months of, um, again, not income, but living expenses uh, is what I have approximately. It kind of comes and goes. I mean, if you look at it, you know, any any contributions to your Roth accounts, you could Roth IRAs, you could get back if you really needed to. Anything you have in a taxable account is kind of an emergency fund. We have a pretty sizable taxable account. But on the conservative side, three to six months of living expenses uh, is certainly not a bad way to go. I think people who have a stable job like I do, I have, you know, amazing health insurance while I'm on active duty. I think you could make a serious argument for having a much lower emergency fund. There frankly aren't very many emergencies that I'm going to have to cover that would be that big of a deal. I mean, I've got health insurance. I don't pay any deductibles. I'm not going to lose my job. I have a government pension. Um, you know, I mean, my biggest emergency would be like, you know, my a car just gets totaled and I have to buy a new one. I mean, which isn't that big of a deal for me. But So I think in some cases you could make an argument for having a, a taking a more aggressive look at your emergency fund and not really having three to six months expenses. It just all depends on your kind of life. I mean, if you're in a setting where you could lose your job and your health insurance is iffy, well, then you might need a year. You know, it just all depends. How much cash do you hold? You have your emergency fund and, and do you hold a lot of cash for, for other yeah. opportunities? On a percentage basis, it's probably two to three percent at any time. I don't like it when my when my quote emergency fund, which is really more of a combination of just yeah, I don't like it when the balance gets below twenty five thousand dollars. But um, it, it tends to fluctuate. It just depends on how much what we're spending and how many vacations we take. It used to be that it used to be the way they paid the doctors in the military. You got bonuses as a lump sum. But now you get them spread out monthly. So it used to be kind of like a lump sum. It would hit and then it would rise, it would shoot up, and then it would just gradually taper off over the year as we like, you know, traveled or spent money or whatever. But now they've switched a lot of those to monthly. So it's a little more steady state. But hmm. probably, you know, it's between two or three percent. But that's, that's not really like a, that's just that's just spending money. And it's not really any kind of like strategic hold that, oh, I'm waiting for the bubble to burst and then I'm going to dump a bunch of cash in the market. You know, that's like market sure. time. I don't do any of that. Sure. And do you have a like a high interest savings account? I know Goldman has one. Ally, do you use that or do you just keep it in your primary checking account? Um, no, not checking account. We keep it in the prime money market at Vanguard. I, I honestly, like I know I could probably get more somewhere else and, and the prime money market wasn't paying very much for a long time. But one of the features, one of the things I value is simplicity. Like part of the re I actually allocate nothing to real estate other than my primary home, which I own full out. I don't, I, I just like to keep things as simple as possible. So even if I could get something more, um, at somewhere else, I would just keep it in Vanguard because I like having it all in one place. My kids have high interest savings accounts with Ally because of the, um, you know, higher rates, but uh, for their money. But I don't, I don't do it. I just keep it all there. Yeah, for a time I was taking a bath in the money market, but that's okay. I just value the convenience of having it all in one place. Yeah, I'm with you. Instead of going from bank to bank, I think it's easier. Your fourth step is is manage your debt, and I want to go back to your house. You said your house is completely paid off. Was it paid off? Did you buy it with cash, or how long did it take you to get paid off? Is that something you really prioritized, or, or what's your opinion on on debt on real estate? 
Yeah, it was really kind of not not optimally done. I mean, um, <laughs> you know, we we bought the place with a VA loan with really no money down, and then and then like we talked about before, I I started taking the advice of Vanguard and was just like, well, you know, all you can really do is screw this up now. So you know, it just so happened that the exact amount uh, they wanted to me to put in bonds was the exact amount that almost the exact amount that my mortgage was. So I like to read Jonathan Clements, you know, he has his blog, humble dollar, you guys may have read it, and he's written a bunch of books. And one of his things he likes to talk about is how, you know, a mortgage is like a reverse bond. And if you pay off a mortgage, it's kind of the equivalent of a bond. It's like a bond equivalent with a guaranteed rate of return. So I I essentially, a couple years after we took out the mortgage, I just said, you know what, it doesn't make sense to me to have you know this amount of money in bonds and have a mortgage and they're basically paying me the same rate it's kind of stupid so i just paid it off and i mean yeah and i honestly i just think that if you're i really do believe in the people that say hey if you're really getting to the point where you're thinking about retiring especially at an early age you know being debt free is a pretty huge i think that's a pretty good goal to set uh, just just to go over, we've kind of talked about step five, max out your retirement accounts, and step six, which is invest in stock and bond index funds or ETFs. Step seven, we kind of just got into making a, an intelligent uh, decision to rent versus buy with real estate. Is there is there a mistake that you made in the past that you know with that with your real estate purchase or with renting beforehand that that kind of led you to that or? Or did that kind of just come about from seeing all the things, different things in the military? Because I know when people move around a lot, it's it's very tempting to to buy, but then you become a long distance landlord potentially, and then real estate markets change depending on where you're going and everything like that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, I've had a I've had a history with real estate. I mean, when we, you know, in the military, they like to move you every two, three, or four years. So it, it's probably not a bad move to rent in the military until you know where you're going to be, but Early on in our career, we, we we've kind of alternated between renting and buying, and so we we went to San. We started in San Diego in 2001, and we rented, and then we bought a house, and that was like 2003, and and that was on the huge upslope of the of the real estate market. And we bought it with one of these mortgages that I would never use nowadays. It was like a doctor mortgage, no money down, high interest rate. But you know how it was back then; they were just handing money out like it was nothing, and which is how we got in the position we were in, and so. Bought the house, um, sold it for a massive profit. A year and a half later, we put it on the market, and someone, you know, they we had seventy two people come through it in three days, and the winning offer, you know, we gave them twenty four hours to submit an offer. We got four. The winning officer offer was, "I'll give you five thousand dollars more than anybody else." So, sold it, then made an amazing decision not to buy because we moved a little north to Carlsbad in San Diego, and at the time they were the this houses were selling so fast. You know, every time they put out a new where we wanted to live, every time they put out a new batch of them, you know, the price would go up forty thousand dollars, and and there was a huge waiting list, and they said you're never going to get one, so we rented one. Well, you know, two years later they couldn't sell them because you know the crash happened and nobody nobody wanted the things. So if we had bought, we would have been like you know underwater, huge problem. But instead we rented, and that was probably more luck than anything. And then we went overseas, you know, lived in the, you know, on the government, on base, and then came back, rented for a year, and then came to Virginia and bought, um, left for a couple of years, rented, and then came back and bought again. You know, it's just kind of alternated. But I mean, the, 
I, I really do think people, the traditional American dream is buy a house. And the traditional, for a lot of my career, the traditional advice was buy a house, you're throwing money away if you rent. But I think a lot of the fire community has really woken people back up to the fact that renting is not a bad idea. I mean, we bought our house and the people that we bought it from were military and they swore that it was in the greatest shape in the history of the world. And within a year and a half, you know, I had water coming out of my uh, microwave. I had, you know... A guy come by to look at the HVAC system and, you know, his exact words were something like, I don't know how they did this and I don't know how I'm going to fix it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, we find, you know, we find there's 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 mold under the house and the crawl space. I mean, you know, I don't even want to tell you what all this stuff costs, but I mean, it is expensive to own a house. So I don't think renting is a bad idea. W- would you consider renting when you retire down the road? Absolutely. I think it's reasonable. You know, you just have to figure out where you're going to be. I just think it, it kind of limits your limits your downside. You know, if you, if you own a place, you got to deal with whatever shows up. And I think if you can find a place that you're interested in living that, you know, again, it's, it's, you gotta, you gotta see where you're at. I think that's why the whole step seven is make a rent, an intelligent rent versus buy decision. I, I just don't think there's a wrong answer in either case. And just depending on where you are financially and in your life, I don't, I don't think, I think you could, you could, you could make an argument for, for renting versus buying. And I think that's true in, in retirement, depending on, you know, where you want to live and what your goals are. So last, last step was, uh, save for future college expenses. I'm assuming you have a couple kids and that's, that's where that kind of stems from. Yeah. And, you know, again, military advantage, you know, in the first half of my military career, you couldn't transfer the GI bill to your kids. And then halfway through, they changed it and you could. And I got two kids and now I have two GI bills. But for the first half of my career, we were saving in 529s, assuming we were going to, we wanted to be able to pay two private educations. So now I've got that. And I've got two GI bills that will cover both of my kids. So, yeah, I mean, we're in a good place. But, you know, we just figure, you know, college is last because you can't borrow money to retire, but you can borrow money for college. Totally. If you have kids and you need to, you need to pay for college. Totally. Well, your kids can borrow money for college. I mean, that's not the situation we're in, but it's definitely should be something you do at the tail end. I mean, you got to get your retirement right before you get your paying for your kids' college right. Yeah. So where do you where do you go from here? Do you have a target net worth that you want to hit, or or is there a certain passive you know amount of income you're going to live on on your in your retirement accounts once they kind of get to a certain level along with your pension, or where where are you kind of headed? I don't really have a target. I mean, that was kind of the point of the call with Vanguard this week. Is like uh, I think we're kind of there. We're already at our target. We don't need to. We don't need to. We don't need any more. Um, you know, we don't want to drive Ferraris and Lamborghinis. We're comfortable the way we live now and do everything we want. And we're there. So I just have to stay in four more years and retire if I want. I don't, I don't know if I'll want to. I don't think I will plan it on staying in because I like it, but it's nice to have the option. It's kind of a mental dilemma though. I mean, when you hit that number and you know that you're done, it, it forces you to finally decide what you want to be when you grow up because you don't have to do it for the money anymore. And my wife's looking at me and shaking her head. 
she agrees. Um, <laughs> no, it causes problems. I mean, it really does. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know, but I guess I have to figure it out now because I don't need to work for money anymore. And in four years, <laughs> I can do whatever I want. You know, I, I don't know, man. You, you in the military, you gotta you gotta make your retirement decision nine to twelve months ahead of time. And I really don't believe you know what you want to do until you're actually faced with the decision. So, uh, you know, ask me nine to twelve. Ask me three years from now. We will. Yeah. We'll keep you around. We will. have you back on. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, Did you ever think uh, that that could happen? I mean, we all kind of think you work and then you retire and you live life in retirement. And, and now you're faced, you know, you're in your mid-40s. And, and obviously, if you retired, you'd retire relatively young. Did you think that you'd be faced with that scenario? I don't think I ever really thought about it. You know, I, I mean, I knew I was saving a lot of money. I read that book early in my career. I knew we were saving way more than anybody else. But who, who could predict the bear market we're in? I mean, the bull market that we've had for the last nine years. So we've all benefited from that if you were invested in the stock market. So, you know, I guess I knew I'd get there eventually. I had no idea what age. I think my ultimate goal, honestly, my ultimate goal was to be able to pay myself a six-figure salary for the rest of my life at the age of 50. And I'm, I'm ahead of that. So. Awesome. awesome. What, what mistakes have you made along the way or what advice do you give to somebody? Uh, it's nothing major. I mean, we kind of already talked about borrowing money to buy a house that I later paid off a year and a half or two years later. That was stupid. Uh, when I was early on, I really early on, I, I really didn't know what I was doing very much. I mean, I was investing in index funds, but I was doing dumb stuff like um, investing in life cycle funds in my taxable account. You know, so I had bonds, you know, in there that were not municipal bonds that shouldn't have been in there. Um, and, and if anything, I've just, you know, just, I feel like I've been a little indecisive with, uh, my asset allocation. Just, it's mostly the mental dilemma of feeling like, Hey, I, I, uh, you know, I, I want to be hundred percent stocks because I have this pension, but then you have to ask yourself, it's kind of the mental dilemma of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? You have to ask yourself, well, what is all this money for? And I, I don't know that I can answer that. I'm not sure. We'll figure it out, I guess. Um, yeah, no, it's a good question. And, and, and it goes along with, you know, at, w at what point is enough enough, right? At, at what point do you say, hey, I, I've made it, I'm good. And, and at what point do you keep pushing for more? Yeah, and that's when you have to figure out what you want to do with yourself. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't want to be the richest guy in the graveyard. Um, but I don't want to start also start just blowing cash on whatever because I can. I mean, I think that's wasteful. So we've started to contribute more toward charity. Um, but honestly, like my, one of my career goals is not to give my uh, kids as much money as possible. I, I don't, they can make their own money. You know, they'll probably wind up with money, but I don't, I, that's not one of my goals. So. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. It's actually one of our listener questions that uh, people often ask is, is what do you think about generational wealth and, and how much, if any, do you plan to leave to your children? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't want to get into the details because they're not my details, but I have probably a pretty significant amount of that coming my way one day. I don't count on it at all because it could all go up in a puff of smoke. You never have any idea. I mean, I had a family member that did the exact opposite of diversification. Um, 
there's actually I, I wrote about it on our blog and I actually wrote about it on Humble Dollar, Jonathan Clement's blog. It's called Two Grandpas. I had two grandpas. One was poor and one was rich, but the rich one, um, he did not diversify at all. And he bought a stock that turned out to be, you know, was a small company that 20 stock changes and buyouts later was highly concentrated in, in a bank that, you know, went did not it lost nearly all of its value in the in the you know financial crisis and it just had a huge amount of net worth wiped out and um, I don't know why I even started talking about this anymore to be honest because <laughs> you were going to start saying you were you were going <laughs> to write my a, of thought, but you were going to write a book called uh, oh. rich, rich Grand Poor Grandpa yeah yeah no oh we was talking about the generational wealth yeah I I don't know man I I don't I don't, I mean, though, I don't know what my strong feeling is. I, I definitely don't think, I don't wake up and think, oh, I want to leave uh, a massive amount of wealth to my children. I just don't, I don't know what, what we'll do with it if we have it. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't want to work my life for the, uh, the benefit of other folks. I mean, they can make their own money as far as I'm concerned. Maybe that makes me a cruel person, but <laughs> I don't know. So last question here before we dive into some just some rapid fire questions. Uh, how come you haven't invested more in real estate? Obviously, you have your primary residence, but have you thought about investing in real estate on the side, whether that's syndications or another property or a duplex or how come no other real estate investment? I think about it all the time, but I really do not want to have I, – I told you earlier I enjoy simplicity. I, I do not want to be a landlord. I don't want those headaches. That is the last thing I need. I work enough. And, uh, writing this, you know, writing for the blog and doing all that takes a lot of time. Um, I like to golf. Uh, I don't need to, you know, I really just believe in the Vanguard thing. You know, I keep coming back to them, but their kind of approach is you can invest in, in, in real estate, but you don't have to. And so if I don't have to, I'm not gonna, I mean, you know, their take is, you know, you are invested in real estate. If you do a total stock market index, well, it's probably about 3% REITs. So you are, and I own my primary residence. I know that's not very diversified, but I don't know. I've just chosen not to do it. Just avoided the hassle. I mean, I did it. I actually, that was one of the financial mistakes. I did it early on when I didn't know what I was doing. I had a REIT investment because I read, this is pretty early on, but I read the um, random walk down wall street and he recommends REITs. But of course, I didn't know what I was doing, and I had it in a taxable account, so that was stupid. But <laughs> I don't know. I've just oh, chosen. No, no, I mean, it's their own. There's, there's nothing wrong I've with just it. chosen not to do it. Yeah, I think about it, but I don't. I don't think I need to. Yeah, fair enough. All right, let's dive into some rapid fire questions here, and then uh, we'll let you go. So, most expensive jeans or pair of pants that you've ever purchased? Uh, probably a hundred dollars. Okay, most expensive shoes? Two hundred. Most expensive car? $36,000. Okay. Most expensive meal out that you've paid for? With a group of people, probably six or 700 bucks. Okay. And what item or items are worth spending more money on? What do you value? Uh, I value golf with my dad, although he usually pays, so that probably doesn't count. Um, he does like to go to premium places, though. Um, I think my value experiences over things. I'm not a thing guy, you know. I mean, probably my coolest thing I own is my golf clubs and my MacBook Air that I'm 
sitting here with right now. So. <laughs> okay. What was your high school and, and college GPA? Oh, you don't want to know. Uh, high school was 4.0. I was one of 13 valedictorians. Uh, college, it was like 3.96, I think. Oh, good for you. So, yeah. Uh, and what was your, your range of income during your working life? Ooh, you want to include family income, you mean, or just me individually? Uh, sure. Family's fine. Well, at the most, probably like below 300,000 a year. And then at the lowest, I mean, well, I guess when we were in medical school, we were making, geez, I don't know, $20,000 a year if we were lucky. Awesome. So, just to wrap up here, where can people get a hold of you? You obviously have your your blog. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how people can contact you. Yeah, if you go to if you go to militarymillions.com, I mean, uh, there's all the usual things there. You know, Facebook, Twitter. You can contact us. Um, that's probably where I would go. Awesome. So that's that's military millions net worth of four point two million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey guys, it's been uh, it's been fun. I really appreciate it. Have a good uh, rest of your evening. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.